1: touch with technology
0: with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And one of the most pervasive modern technologies today is Wi-Fi, which is fascinating since as a standard, it just had its 21st birthday not long ago. The original Wi Fi standard was released in nineteen ninety seven, but the development of Wi Fi stretches back further than that, and I thought it might be interesting to trace that history and get to know more about the tech that lets us set up a local coffee shop situation, you know, to catch up on emails. How how did that come to pass? And how does it actually work? Well, decades before there was a Wi Fi standard, there was Aloha net. Back in the late 1960s, computer scientists and students at the University of Hawaii were trying to come up with a way that would let students on the various Hawaiian islands communicate with the mainframe computer on the Oahu campus at the university. Their work was concurrent with the work of BBN, a company that was working on ARPANET. And ARPANET, you may remember, was the predecessor to the Internet. Uh, The purpose of ARPANET was to find out ways to connect remote computers together, uh, remote computers that were working on different computer architectures and have a way that they could meaningfully communicate with each other. Well, this was happening around the same time. Now, one thing the group wanted to do was take advantage of a special way to send data between computers called packet switching. MIT had developed packet switching back in 1965. So, It was still a relatively new technology when the folks over at the University of Hawaii decided to try and create their own Aloha Net. So what exactly is packet switching? And why is it so important in how networks send information? Well, let's say you want to transfer a large file from one computer to another, a really big one. Let's say that it's maybe several gigabytes in size, which... Today is a pretty big file. Back in the days of 1970, that would have been an unimaginably huge file, but let's stick with it. Now let's say you're trying to send that file over a network. The bandwidth of that network might limit how large a file you'd be able to send. In other words, your connections, your routers, your switches, your buses, if they have a limit on how much information can pass through at one time, that might mean that you can't send that file. It's just too big to fit through the pipes. If you want to have a, a kind of a poor analogy, but a, a physical analogy, imagine that you have a very narrow road and you're driving a really wide truck. And your really wide truck is actually too wide for the narrow road. Well, looks like you're going to have to find another way to get your truck to the other side of that road. That's kind of what I'm talking about here. So packet switching, was a way to make this more manageable, to allow files to transfer across a network in a way that did not overly stress the infrastructure. Essentially, packet switching works by dividing files up into chunks of data called packets. You can think of them as like envelopes that have letters inside of them, and each letter is part of a file that you're sending across the internet. Packets contain a little extra information in them in addition to the file itself. That information includes data about the computer that was sending the file, the computer that's supposed to receive the file. So kind of like the return address and the send address. Those two things would be included. And also how that particular chunk of data fits in with the rest of the information that's being sent. So you can also think of it as sort of like instructions on how to put a puzzle back together. So if I I go with the mail analogy, as in like postal mail, every single piece of information is a piece of a puzzle. And with that piece of a puzzle, I include a little bit of instructions about where that piece fits. I might say this piece is the bottom right corner of the puzzle. And then the envelope has the address that I'm sending from and the address I'm sending to. Well, that's kind of like a packet of data. In packet switching, you send these smaller, more manageable chunks of data across a network. The chunks may or may not follow the same pathway to get to their destination. They may not all go through the exact same nodes across the Internet. The neat thing is, they can all split up and take different pathways. And typically, you have duplicate packets journeying to the destination to help ensure that the full file arrives where it needs to go. Otherwise, the file will be corrupt because it will be missing a piece of the puzzle. Once the packets get to the right computer, they get reassembled into whatever the original file was, whether it's a text file, an image, video, whatever it might be. The team at the University of Hawaii wanted to use packet-switching technology to coupled with radio transmissions, in order to send information from the mainframe and to receive information from students across the island chain. They decided to create a system that would transmit information using radio signals that were in the ultra-high frequency, or UHF, range. UHF, apart from being a hilarious Weird Al Yankovic movie, is a range of radio signals that fall into the spectrum of that at the low end is at 300 megahertz, and at the upper end is at 3 gigahertz. Now, a hertz is a unit that refers to one cycle per second. I've talked about this recently, but it's always good to go over this again. Now, imagine that a radio wave is a long sine wave with smooth, even peaks and valleys, and they just repeat over and over and over again. Now, if you were to take an arbitrary point, such as the peak of the wave... And measure it to the next peak over, you would have one wavelength of that radio wave. Radio waves travel at the speed of light, regardless of wavelength, if it's a short wavelength or a long wavelength. So, if you know how long a wavelength is for a radio wave, you know how many radio waves will pass a given point in space every second, because you already know the speed at which they will travel. A 300 megahertz radio wave will have 300 million waves pass through a given point in space per second. A 3 gigahertz radio wave will have 3 billion radio waves pass that same point per second. The 3 gigahertz waves clearly have to be smaller than the megahertz ones because they're all traveling at the same speed. So the only way you can cram more wavelengths past a point per second is by decreasing the wavelength. The radio spectrum as a whole, by the way, starts all the way down at 3 hertz, meaning only three extremely long radio waves would pass a given point in space every second. And it goes all the way up to 3 terahertz, which is equivalent to 3,000 gigahertz, or 3,000 billion cycles per second. So while UHF stands for ultra-high frequency, it's nowhere near the top of the spectrum. AlohaNet relied on two such frequencies in the UHF range. One frequency was used for outgoing signals from the mainframe to the other computers. So the main computer would send signals out over one frequency to students, but the other frequency was used by the other computers to send messages back to the mainframe. So the students' machines would use a different frequency. So you had kind of two channels in a way. You had the outgoing and the incoming But this created a possible problem. There could come an instance in which more than one computer was trying to communicate with the mainframe at the same time. And when that happened, the signals were said to quote-unquote collide with one another. It's sort of like trying to have multiple people talk over a single radio channel. Only one person can speak at a time. If multiple people try, it's just a mess. So... AlohaNet adopted a strategy in which the mainframe would send out a received signal whenever an incoming message came in without a collision. It was essentially saying, I am confirming that I got your message. And that would tell the sending computer that the message got through. And if the sending computer did not get such a response, it would attempt to send the packets of data again at a randomly determined time interval. That random interval was meant to decrease the possibility that another collision would occur, because obviously more than one computer is involved in this. And if both computers try to send the exact same data packets at the same time intervals over and over again, you're just going to keep getting collisions. This time, there would be the hope that there would be no collisions because you would have this somewhat random time interval that is spacing things out a little bit. Now in its original configuration, AlohaNet was not terribly efficient. It had a throughput rate of just 18%. And most of the bandwidth went unused. And so the team needed to come up with a fix. First, they tried the old time sharing route. Time sharing is when you have several terminals connected to a centralized computer. The computer can only work on one set of instructions at a time. And so users have to wait a turn to access the computer's processing power and memory and etc. But computers work really fast. And so frequently, it would feel like you were working on a mainframe in real time at the same time as everybody else. Though in fact, the computer is actually rushing to complete one set of instructions before starting on the next one. The problem with time sharing over a radio network was that the computers had to follow a schedule of when they could send packets. So if it wasn't their time to send a packet, they had to wait. And so it meant that there were wasted cycles, since sometimes the computer had nothing to send, and so those scheduled transmission times would go unused. However, this did increase the throughput rate for AlohaNet, so it improved things a little bit. The team decided to try a different approach to improve the system further, and they designed instructions so that client machines, the ones that are sending requests to the centralized computer, would monitor the traffic on the radio channel to determine when the channel was free. So essentially, they're listening for the quiet spots, and then the client machine would send packets over that radio channel. The packets were actually smaller at this point, too, which would allow for more gaps between packets, and that would allow other computers to slip other packets in. So while the messages appear to be consistent and continuous, in fact, it's a bunch of tiny little puzzle pieces, and occasionally there's enough of a gap for other puzzle pieces to sneak in, and the centralized computer would just sort everything based upon the meta information on the packets. This approach got the name Carrier Sense Multiple Access, or CSMA. The system continued to monitor collisions as well, so its full name was CSMA-CD, or Carrier Sense Multiple Access with Collision Detection. Now, I've got more to say about the evolution toward Wi-Fi, but before I go further, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. That's C-O-N-C-U-R com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with at and in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and at and will be there to keep you connected.
1: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner man. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: AlohaNet was up and running by 1971, but it would still be more than 20 years before we'd see the first Wi-Fi standard get unveiled. Heck, it'd be 14 years before I have another big moment to talk about in the evolution toward Wi-Fi. That moment happened in 1985, when the United States Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, changed the rules about the radio spectrum. Every country has rules about which frequency bands in the radio spectrum may be used for specific applications. For example, in the United States, AM radio has all frequencies between 535 kHz and 1,605 kHz. No other technology is allowed to use those radio frequencies. This prevents various technologies from interfering with one another. If you didn't have restrictions on who could use which frequency, then whatever frequency was the strongest, had the greatest uh, energy behind it in any given area, would win out and it would be chaos. And so the United States divvied up the radio spectrum for specific uses, which included not only communications technology, but also stuff like microwave ovens. Say what? What? And by the way, this is not just the U.S. Other countries also have done this. But it's because technology like microwave ovens can generate radio frequencies of their own. Not to communicate, but that can be a byproduct of their operations. So the United States FCC mandated that manufacturers of microwaves and other technologies that create these radio waves, make sure their products only generated radio frequencies within specific bands in order to avoid creating interference for other technology. So it's not like the U.S. specifically said, hey, let's set aside this slice of radio frequency spectrum so that microwaves can talk to one another. Instead, they said, hey, let's make sure all microwave oven manufacturers be certain that their ovens only generate radio frequencies in this slice so that the ovens don't interfere with communications equipment. In other words, they set aside a certain slice of the radio spectrum and said, this is your playground, you can create stuff that creates radio frequencies in this range, and that shouldn't mess up anything that's on either side of that frequency range. These bands, the ones set aside for equipment that can generate radio waves but aren't necessarily communication tech, are called ISM bands. The ISM stands for Industrial, Scientific, and Medical. These bands cover several different separate groups of frequencies, but two of them include the 2.4 GHz to 2.5 GHz band and the 5.725 GHz to 5.875 GHz bands. These are going to be very important for our discussions on Wi-Fi. Now, again, we look at 1985 when the FCC decided it would open up three ISM bands to unlicensed use. That would include the 2.4 GHz and the 5.725 GHz bands. Unlicensed use required a couple of technological allowances. One was that the transmitters would have to be very low power in the 1 Watt range. Another was that gadgets making use of that frequency would need a high tolerance to interference since other devices were still going to be giving off radio waves at those frequencies. Essentially what the FCC was saying is you can develop technologies that can work on these ranges as long as they aren't so powerful that they're going to interfere with other technologies and you do it with the understanding that there's already stuff out there that's generating radio waves in these frequencies. So whatever you create needs to be done in such a way that it can tolerate that. This decision in 1985 set the foundation for Wi-Fi, which still would not debut for another decade, but that didn't mean there weren't people working on the idea in the meantime. One of those people was Vic Hayes. Hayes had joined the NCR Corporation in the 1970s. NCR, which originally stood for National Cash Register, had been involved in various technologies since its founding in the late 19th century. NCR's goal was to create a standard that the company could then use in its own systems. The idea was that the standard would allow companies to create systems that connected devices like front-end retail equipment, such as cash registers, and back-end mainframe systems, and using radio waves instead of cables or other clunky methodologies. And they didn't want to go a proprietary route. They wanted to create a standard that would work so that various OEM uh, companies could create products that used it. Hayes had done some work in authoring standards for data communications as part of his job previously, and NCR was interested in finding an unlicensed use for the 2.4 GHz ISM band. NCR and AT&T had developed a working predecessor to the, what would essentially evolve into Wi-Fi in 1988, and that was called Wavelan. They submitted the design of this wireless protocol to the IEEE 802 LAN-MAN Standards Committee. LAN, by the way, stands for Local Area Network, and MAN for a Municipality Area Network, or Municipal Area Network. This led to the need to form a new working group within that committee, the 802 committee, to create a standard for wireless networking communication. NCR chose Hayes to head up a working group to that effect in 1990. The working group's designation was 802.11, and their goal was to create a standard for wireless local area networks. Now, a local area network is pretty self-explanatory. It's a network of computing devices that are locally connected to one another, generally contained within a building or maybe a campus of buildings. The devices can intercommunicate with one another. A LAN can be, but doesn't have to be, connected to wider networks like the internet. And in the old days, the only way you could set up a LAN was to actually have physical connections between all the different machines and some sort of hub. But NCR wanted to do away with those physical connectors and create a standard that manufacturers could use to build in wireless communication capabilities directly into their products. Hayes had some radio communications background and had previous experience helping create communication standards, but still wasn't sure he was the right man for the job. As it turned out, he absolutely was. He gathered a group of experts together, and they began to debate what needed to go into the standard. And the first big argument was over two different modulation strategies, frequency hopping or direct sequence. Both of those techniques are meant to use a larger bandwidth for transmission than what would otherwise be necessary for the specific type of data you're sending back and forth. Frequency hopping spread spectrum, or FHSS, divides a large bandwidth into parallel narrow channels. They're large enough to hold the data in question. If we go back to talking about vehicles and roads... This would be saying, let's imagine that you have a really, really wide highway. I'm talking 20 lanes wide. Uh, and at first, you don't have any lanes painted in there. It's just a an, an enormous road. Well, you could try and use it that way. But frequency hopping would allow you to create narrower lanes, lanes that are wide enough for a vehicle so that you could have 20 vehicles traveling on there if they all were sticking to their own lanes. That's kind of the idea behind frequency hopping. The system sends data in a semi-random way to one of those channels, but that means the other channels go unused in the process. And because only one channel is in use at any given time, you're technically wasting bandwidth equal to the size of the channel multiplied by the number of channels minus one channel, because you're already using one. So this would be like saying... Yeah, you have a highway, it's 20 lanes wide, you've painted these lanes in there so you can randomly choose a lane between 1 and 20, and you're fine, but that means the other 19 lanes are going unused. It's not an efficient use of space. That was the argument against this strategy. Uh, that's obviously inefficient, but it was also technically easier to do. And so about half the working group wanted to pursue frequency hopping as the modulation methodology of choice because... While it wasn't efficient, it was easier to implement. Direct Sequence Spread Spectrum, or DSSS, introduces pseudo-random noise into the signal it sends in order to change the phase of the signal itself. This creates the digital equivalent of static. It would seem to be meaningless information when you received it, but if you knew which pseudo-random sequence was used to create the phase shift... You could reverse that whole process. You could de-spread the static and extract the meaningful information out of it. DSSS is more challenging to implement than FHSS, but it also is more robust. And so the other half of the group wanted to follow that idea. Both of those methodologies would allow for multiple devices to communicate across a band of frequencies without interfering with one another. And the IEEE rules stated that in order to adopt a strategy, you had to secure the support of at least 75% of the working group. But each method had about 50% of the support. The only solution was to create a system that could support both modulation strategies, and so that's what the group decided to do. I'll wrap up the history of Wi-Fi and give a lowdown on what the different variations mean in just a second, but first... Let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's c o n c u r.com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T In-Car Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
1: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fibre. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: While the working group began to hash out the standards that would become fundamental to Wi-Fi, a group of engineers, astronauts, and astronomers were developing a technique that would become just as important. Vic Hayes, whom I mentioned earlier, is sometimes called the father of Wi-Fi. But another man, John O'Sullivan, also gets that title on occasion. O'Sullivan is an electrical engineer and he focused on radio astronomy. He led a team that developed a way to reduce multipath interference of radio signals. Something that was absolutely necessary if you wanted to have a smooth experience with a wireless local area network. His team's work would receive a patent credited to the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, or CSIRO, which is an Australian federal government agency. The really funny thing to me is that this research was originally part of an experiment to try and detect expanding many black holes. That experiment failed, but the technique would end up changing the world once incorporated into Wi-Fi. Meanwhile, back in the 802.11 working group, the standard was getting closer to becoming a real thing. The very first version of the protocol was unveiled in 1997. It had a maximum download speed of 2 megabits per second, which is excruciatingly slow these days. And that was only if you could use the DSSS approach. Remember, it involved both the direct spread and the frequency hopping. If you used frequency hopping, you topped out at 1 megabit per second. That didn't exactly cause everyone to throw their cables out their respective windows in a fit of joy. But it was progress. In 1999, the working group released a new protocol, and this one was called 802.11b. It also used DSSS and the 2.4 GHz band, but it was able to boost speeds up to 11 megabits per second. While this was the second protocol released by the group, It was the first to be widely adopted as a wireless local area network standard. Chances are, if you were an early adopter of wireless technology, this was the standard your computer was using, as it was the first time that manufacturers actually embraced this technology when they started making network adapters. Later on, the functionality would be built directly onto laptop motherboards instead of having to get an adapter that you would plug into your laptop, but this was still pretty darn slow compared to wired connections. A little later in 1999, a new methodology launched. It was called 802.11a. And yes, these designations are getting awfully confusing, because the naming standard jumps around a bit. We just talked about 802.11b, and the original one was just called 802.11. And now we're talking about 802.11a. This one had a couple of major differences from the earlier versions. First, it worked on a different band of frequencies. Instead of using 2.4 gigahertz, 802.11a relied on 5 gigahertz. And that meant the 802.11a standard was not compatible with the earlier ones because it was using a totally different range of frequencies for communication. So you could not use a, a .11a device with a .11b device. They they talked on different radio frequencies, so they could not communicate with each other. But it was also faster, with a top speed of around 54 megabits per second. In addition, it relied on something called orthogonal frequency division multiplexing, or OFDM. Now, this is a way to encode data across multiple carrier frequencies. And Maybe someday I'll try to tackle that concept in a full episode, but it gets super technical, so I'm going to leave it for now because I'm running out of time, and we still have a couple of versions of Wi-Fi we have to touch upon. The next one is 802.11G. That standard debuted in 2003, and it uses the 2.4 gigahertz radio band, so back to 2.4. But like 802.11A, it also used OFDM, and that would give Point a max speed of 54 megabits per second. And because it communicates on the 2.4 gigahertz range, it is compatible with 802.11b. And so a lot of the equipment you could buy, such as a wireless router, would have the designation of 802.11b slash g, meaning it could operate across both standards, Also, you should know that communication can only go as fast as the slowest component involved in the communication. So if you had an 802.11b device communicating with an 802.11g device, you could only hit speeds of up to 11 megabits per second because that was the top speed limit for B. So it's kind of like a a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. The connections are only as fast as their slowest point. In 2009, we got 802.11n. This standard allowed for the use of multiple antennas when transmitting information, which increased speeds up to 450 megabits per second. What's more, the 11n standard could operate across both 2.4 and 5 gigahertz bands, meaning it could also communicate with all the older standards, like 802.11b-g and 802.11a. Then, in 2012, we got 802.11ac. And yes, I am crying. Thanks for asking. This standard operates in the 5 gigahertz range and has transfer speeds in the gigabit realm, which is wicked vast. It's also really useful if you've got a lot of machines connected within that single wireless LAN, because you've got a lot of bandwidth to play with. Now, at CES 2018, some companies showed off devices that are using a new version of Wi-Fi that has not yet had an official release. It's called 802.11ax, and the devices at CES were reported to have a top data transmission speed of 11 gigabits per second, which is really wicked fast. It can operate in both the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz bands, and it should launch sometime in 2019 officially. Now, there are other versions of the Wi-Fi standard that don't use the 2.4 or 5 gigahertz ranges. They tend to be for other types of technologies than mobile devices and computers. They could be for something like an in-vehicle network, for example, and I didn't cover them because you're not likely to work with them yourself in an average setting. But I hope this gives you a little more information about Wi-Fi. Maybe in a a future episode, I'll dive into deeper detail of exactly how Wi-Fi works. But you have a general idea. It's all about radio frequencies, mostly in the 2.4 gigahertz or 5 gigahertz, 5.725 gigahertz range to be specific, and that it involves various modulation techniques so that multiple devices can communicate with a centralized router or hub. In order to send information with, to each other and also to the internet at large. So it's been a very useful technology, one that has transformed our world in meaningful and uh, difficult to anticipate ways. And I suspect the, that will continue to be the case. In fact, we may even see wireless technologies supersede wired ones to the point where people who are using high speed connections for their jobs or for stuff like uh, high-end gaming, will choose to go wireless rather than wired because we may eventually get to the point where it's just faster. It's just less latency, higher data throughput rates. If that happens, it's really a game changer. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you have any requests for future topics I should cover here on Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, maybe it's a person in technology, maybe it's a company, or maybe there's someone you would like me to interview or have on as a guest host, Let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and
1: thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: WORK.